All right. Well, thank you, Gary Corbett. So I don't know if you even know what you got signed up for, but I, my name is John. And I host the Hustle podcast. Okay. And unlike a lot of the people that are here at the expo, my focus is a lot more on the pop side. So I know you get asked to talk about Kiss a lot. Yeah. We might touch on that, but I'm really interested in some of the other things, more pop-oriented things that you've done. Great. So we talk about sort of how people view the ups and downs of their career in hindsight. You know, the what went well, what, what didn't, and how you make a living today. You're still playing and doing yeah. a lot of music, so I think that's really interesting in this day and age. So tell me a little, now, to my understanding, the first big thing that sort of happened to you was writing Cyndi Lauper's Shebop. Prior to that, I just learned a second ago when I, uh, BJ Cramp, who's also right. here, pulled out a record of Tom Dickey and the and something. The desires, yes. And there you are in the back looking as mod as can be in about 1980. <laughs> so, and now, if for those who can't see, I'm looking at a rock star here with the long <laughs> hair and the tats and everything. How, where did you begin? What happened? Uh, well, I grew up in Brooklyn. Okay. And um, I grew up playing piano, taking piano lessons as a kid. And, you know, it was always what I was going to be. There was never a doubt about it. I started doing weddings and stuff like that when I was 10, playing on weekends. And, you know, and eventually, uh, you know, made my way into Manhattan to try to make it in the real business, sure. you know. And that Tom Dickey record was, um, it was exactly 1980. Uh, we were managed by Tommy Mottola at the time. Really? Yeah. He was, okay. He was managing Hole and Oates. I just finished John Oates's autobiography the other day. That must have been an interesting yeah. book, I'm sure. Yeah. And um, we were signed to Mercury Records, and uh, we we opened for Hole and Oates a bunch. Really? Uh, both like in both while we were preparing for the record, and then once the record was done, and uh, yeah, okay. we we had a couple of singles that did some somewhat well regionally yeah but there was never a big hit now I'm curious you mentioning being managed by Tommy Mottola did is mm -hmm. this one of those situations where you did you ever feel like 90% of his attention was going toward his biggest act which I assume was Hall and no. Oates and you were getting the leftovers no not at all because he was very um, he had a good staff okay. you know, was, uh, Randy Hoffman was his right hand man uh, Jeb was a the radio promo guy, so everybody had their areas that they dealt with, and Tommy was the overseer to make sure okay. everything was happening. Okay, so you felt you felt like you got a fair shake. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Now, where does Shebop come into this? Okay. Well, it was actually that that Tom Dickey and the Desires record was produced by Martin Rushent, who sure. Yeah, but did uh, mm -hmm. Don't You Want Me Baby, Human yep. League and stuff. And then it came time for the second record, and we were searching for producers. And one of the candidates was a guy named Steve Lunt, who was a um, rhythm guitar player in a band called City Boy, which was produced by Mutt Lang. Yes. And they were an English band, and they broke up, and he had moved to New York, and he was shopping himself as a producer. Okay. And he was one of the candidates. We spent a couple of days in the studio with him, and we ended up not choosing him to produce mm. the record. But he and I connected on a personal level and found we had similar musical tastes and loved the old Motown pop stuff. And, and so we decided to do some writing together. And cool. so the very first night we got together, we wrote like three or four things that became songs, uh, and Shebop was one of them. And what, what provoked two guys to walk, write a song about a woman masturbating? 
Because <laughs> that's really what that song is. Let's, yes, let's no, go to the chase. Yes. No, it is. But, but <laughs> all right, here, let me give you the, the background on it because it wasn't that premeditated. Oh, okay. Um, what happened was, like I said, we wrote three or four things that night. And we decided what, very at, the, at first night that we were going to name the pieces of music, even if they weren't finished, because it would be easy to remember what, what they are. That, Makes sense. Say, the one that sounds like this. You know? So he had a notebook full of song titles that he had thought up through the years. Mm -hmm. And we would go through them and pick one that was appropriate to the music that we, or that we thought was appropriate. And that was one of them. And when we picked it, he said, he told me that it was an English slang term for masturbation. I said, appropriate. <laughs> that works for me. Right. And we, we put it on the shelf. But we didn't really know how to finish it. And it was, you know, it was just music at that point. Yeah. And Cindy was singing uh, demos that, for the songs that we were finishing. And she heard it right at the time when she had gotten signed for her solo deal. Right. And so she said, I really like that. Can I write the lyrics and... I'll do it on my record. We said, sure. Okay, we don't know what the hell we're going to do with it. Really? Yeah. Okay, so it was, you had, it was a piece of music, unfinished music that you guys had sort of laying around. Yeah, but it's, it's the, if you, it's the entire song, top to bottom, including this, the whistle solo in really? the middle. And all, she, all you had to do was put vocals on it. Okay. And so it was that complete. She heard that and yeah. thought, I can make this into something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. Something we touch on on here is sort of the business side of things. How did that change your life? Because that was a big hit, and it remains on her greatest hits albums yes. and stuff like that. Yes. I would imagine you see some decent mailbox money from this song. Um, well, yes. The fact that I still receive any at all is a great thing. Good. Um, but, of course, it's, it's yeah. dwindled down. Not enough to live years. on, no, but it's not no, bad. No. Okay. But... You know, there was a time when that record was relevant yeah. that it was it was pretty nice for a while. Well, this had to be the first true taste of success that you saw after yeah. kind of sludging, slugging it out for a few years. Yeah. I'm curious, what was the first um, indulgence? Well, you know, it was the early 80s. Yeah. And so that song was the result of messing with technology so to yeah. speak and, and having a happy accident which became Shebop okay and what it was was we were using a drum machine which was a very new thing at the time to trigger the arpeggiator of my synthesizer which was also a very new thing at the time mm -hmm. and that's how I came up with that bass line oh got it mm -hmm. and so when I got my first royalty check there was something that I had been waiting to buy, which was a brand new Apple IIe computer. A brand brand new what? Apple IIe computer. That's what you bought. And a DX, Yamaha DX7, <laughs> a Tascam Porter Studio four-track cassette recorder, uh -huh. because that's what we recorded the demo for Shebop on. And uh, yeah, because the MIDI thing was just starting. Yeah. And People were talking about how it's going to be used to record music. Right. So I wanted to be the first guy on the block with it. No way. And um, yeah. Wow. And so I had I'd been fortunate enough because I bought the DX7 right away. I got called to do a video with Lou Reed. With and, Lou Reed? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and on the set of that video, one of the guys that was 
there to be the, a horn player was a guy named Wayne Cobham, which is Billy Cobham's younger brother. And he was already using the Apple IIe. And he came over because he saw my new DX7. He was, oh, is that a DX7? And they, they were still hard to get. Right. And so we became friends, and he told me about his computer. And I said, I, that's exactly what I want. Take me to the store and get me exactly what you have. No way. And he, he and I, yeah, he taught me. He got me started, and we, we did a lot of work together. That's wild. Yeah. Now, did you have any input into the creation of the song once Cindy selected it? It's um, identical to the demo. No, it is. Okay, it's so identical. I didn't know if they brought you in for like a... Yeah, I actually did do a keyboard session. I did go to the okay. studio to du to duplicate okay. what we had done. The reason the I demo. ask is because I've had Eric Bazillion on the show from the Hooters, and I know that mm -hmm. they were yeah. basically her band right yes. then, and Rick Chertoff uh, produced it. So right. I wondered if you ever got in the room with these guys and sort I, of... I had gotten in the room. Just, I did one session okay. for, for the song uh, as an overdub session, so it wasn't a lot of people there. Okay, okay. Wow, fascinating. Okay, so from there, and you'll have to correct me if I have the timeline wrong. The other two things I want to ask you about is somewhere along the line you work with Debbie Gibson. Yeah. And somewhere along the line you work with Lou Graham. Yes. Okay, so tell me which one comes first and then tell me the transition. Uh, Lou Graham comes first. Okay. Actually, what happened was, so as a result of buying the Apple IIe computer, I start doing a lot of like dancey, which was the thing at the time, just mm -hmm. like Debbie. You know? Right. I was doing a lot of that type of music in, in the studios for people because I was one of the first guys that could do the mm -hmm. programming thing. And so, um, but the thing about that was, I was always the only creative force in the picture. You know, there was no uh, other musicians because it was all being done. You know, you lay down a drum track, then you lay down a bass track. But I was doing it all. Yeah. And so that got old to me after a while. And now I'm fast forwarding a couple of years to get to 1987, or yeah, 87. And I was doing one of those projects at Electric Lady Studios in New York, in the okay. village. And I walk out to the coffee machine and I bump into a guy who's getting a cup of coffee. And we start talking and he's a guy working in the studio upstairs, does the same thing that I do. Mm -hmm. Computers, keyboard player. And I said to him that, you know, I was getting a little stir crazy being in the studio. Sure. Getting itchy to play on the road. And we finished our conversation, went our separate ways, and I went back to work. And about a week later, I got a phone call from him. And he said to me, he says, listen, he said, I got myself in a bit of a jam. Uh, I double booked myself on two tours, and I might need you to, to fill in for me on one of them if you're still looking to go on the road. I said, now, mind you, when I was in a top 40 cover band driving up to the Catskill Mountains to play in the lounge for the summer right. with my wife in the car, we were listening to Far and a Four. Oh, one of the yes. records of all time. Of course. And she said to me, if you could play with anybody in the world, you know, we were just having one of those conversations. Sure. And I looked at the tape deck and I said, that guy right there would be really? my idol. I would love to play with him, but, you know, what's of course. the odds of it ever happening? Pipe dream, of course. Okay. So that we, that was a very definite conversation that we both remembered. So when I get the call from, the guy's name is Phil Ashley. And he's, I, I said, uh, oh man, I said, I'm, you know, I'd be happy to go on the road. So who, who are you playing with? And he said, Lou Graham. Oh. And I went, oh my God, really? That, you know? And he goes, no, no, no. He goes, 
you're playing with Lou Graham. He goes, I'm going to play with Mick Jagger. Oh, ho, ho. <laughs> well, Lou Graham is not such a bad consolation prize. Fine with it. Yes, believe me. Yes, it was like it was like a dream come true for me. Wow. Yeah. So now that this, we're talking about the Long Hard Look album. No, we're talking before. We're talking about Ready or Not. We're talking really? about Midnight you, Blue. So this was the. Did you play on Midnight Blue? No, the the guy who's who okay. asked me to do the gig, Phil Ashley. So he plays played. on the album. You right. go on the tour. You get invited back to play on Long Hard Look, Correct. and then go on that tour as well. Right. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Now, Ready or Not is the better album of the two. Yes. Long Hard Look is not a bad album, but it has the this incessant snare drum sound that just won't stop throughout every song on on that entire album. Well, you know, that record was done at his house. Oh, was it really? Yeah. Yeah. He, oh. he had a beautiful place up in Katona, New York. Okay. He was a muscle car collector. And really? He, oh yeah, total total gearhead. <laughs> And he, he had this like 10 car garage where he stored all his muscle cars and the second level because it was a big square building second level was his recording studio he had a Neve console up there and a 2 inch 24 track machine and you know and that's where we did that second that's where wow. that record was done okay so tell me about stories with Lou I one of the greatest voices in rock history and yeah. the guy doesn't get they were huge back in the day, but they he, they don't get the credit they deserve, especially him, and probably because well, of the yes. health problems. Yeah, well, they they as a band get the credit, but you know how many times I would say to somebody, Lou Graham, and they go, who? And you go, oh, foreigner. And go, oh, oh. No. You know. Yeah. But that's the The thing. magic of that band is Mick Jones' songs and Lou Graham's voice. Right. And the chemistry between them, which was volatile. Yeah. And But that sometimes that's what it takes, you right. know. Right. Um, in his solo career, uh, Bruce Turgan, the bass player, was kind of that guy. He okay. Was the guy that kind of was the driving force. Because Lou doesn't really enjoy the process. process oh, really? Much. No. No, it would be hilarious. The making of an album yeah. process? He yeah, doesn't but, really. No, he wants to sing it once and be gone. Oh, so he's not a tinkerer in the no, studio and all no, that stuff. No. Got it. And so that's where the, why the relationship with Mick obviously worked so yes. well. Yes. And, you know, in the other case with, with Bruce. But I can remember, you know, because it was a big open room, we would make, you know, separate things with, with the gobos, the temporary moving walls. Okay. And I can remember times where we'd go into the house, have dinner, come back to do vocals, and we'd be sitting at the console. Lou would be over on the other side of the room by the vocal mic he'd do a take and we'd hit the talkback button to ask him something and we wouldn't get a response because he snuck out the back door to go down to work on his Chevelle or you know <laughs> <laughs> oh, so the singing's just something he's got to fit in yeah, while yeah. he's out yeah. messing with his cars it's a natural gift and, oh wow know, it's it's he's oh what yeah. a guy yeah he's has it's so, it's so the talent just oozes from yeah, him yeah yeah Okay. Yeah. So that, um, you know, so you spend a, probably a couple of years working with Lou. Mm -hmm. That's got to feel good, being with one of your favorite rock stars. And then after this, Debbie Gibson comes into the picture somewhere? No, no. What happened, well, what happens next, before, before the Lou Graham tour even started, Phil Ashley calls me again, and he said, listen, I just finished the new Kiss record, and... They're looking to take a keyboard player out on the road. Would you be interested? Yeah. He wasn't going to do it. And they basically were trusting him to find them the right person. Okay. 
And if I wanted it, it was basically my my job as long as I had to go do an interview with Paul sure. and the manager, which I did. Okay. And I did that before I even left. With, we, we were leaving for Germany like a week after I was meeting with Paul and the manager. And the Kisses rehearsals were starting a week before I was getting back from oh, okay. Europe. Okay. So I went over to Europe with Lou, had 20 albums of Kiss songs on continuous loop my entire <laughs> trip over there to absorb all of the new material. Yeah. And then I flew straight from Munich, Germany, straight to Los Angeles without ever stopping home in New York. And they you got were the same suitcase rehearsals. full of clothes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I spent like three weeks in LA. Okay. And rehearsing, and then we started the Crazy Nights tour. Wow. And that was when I started with Kiss. Debris happened after one or two Kiss tours, Paul decided he wanted to do a solo tour. Oh. And that was in 89. And uh, it was during the time I was on over with Paul that I got the call to go out with Debra. Okay. But so I, had, I had known Deb, or I had been aware of Deborah for, or Debbie, Deborah, whatever. Sure. Um, for years before that, because during the, going back to like 84, 85, when I first started doing the, the computer stuff, mm -hmm. I had teamed up with uh, two guys, one who was a producer, one who was a recording engineer. And the three of us worked together on a bunch of projects. We did a, a record for Atlantic, a girl named Regina. Who was, Gina. That she was like familiar. a Madonna clone. Got it. Okay. And she was managed by the same guy who was managing a young teenager from Long Island named Debbie Gibson. Got it. And so the engineer guy who was the part of this team mm -hmm. used to go out to her house in Long Island to help her record her home demos uh, because the manager asked her it. to. So I had been aware of her long before she got her deal. Okay. I knew she was going to be a thing. Yeah. And um, so when, by the time I was doing the thing with Paul, they were just wrapping up her second, they were wrapping up the electric sure. record. Got it. And they decided they, the first record took off so quickly that the band that they were forced to go out on the road with was a bunch of local club musicians that they okay. found at the last minute to go. Okay. And now that the second record was done and going to be a huge thing, it was time to get a new band and they hired yeah. me as musical director. Got it. And I came in and... Okay. House and Do you care? I mean... Debbie Gibson and Kiss are on absolute opposite ends of the spectrum, obviously. <laughs> Do you care what genre you're working in? Do you like all kinds of genres? Yeah, yeah. I've you're always, I've really? always liked So even though you look like, you know, a hard rock guy, you yeah. can get down with just about anything. Anything. Any, going all the way to orchestra, fully orchestra. Sure, all of it. And okay. I, I do, I've been doing film and TV stuff for that reason. Okay. Because I need to do that stuff as well. Okay. You know? Interesting. I've, I've, I'm formally trained musically. Yeah. I have all of that background, so I, you know, and I've always, even in back in the 70s when the string synthesizer uh -huh. was a new thing and everybody was, you know, doing that on pop records, which also a lot of times meant disco and dance records. Sure. I was the first guy to buy that in my neighborhood. Got it. And so I did a lot of studio work doing always doing string. and with with those keyboards because they weren't real string sounds 
you had to work extra hard to make them sound like strings. Uh, so I always had a thing for doing that and working with strings. So now that technology has brought like really great string libraries to mm -hmm. the computer and keyboard, I love it. Good. You know, it okay. Me, you know, I've taken courses in orchestration and okay. you know, and I've done some okay. films. I actually got an Emmy uh, last year for a, a documentary I did the score for. And I'm, I love doing that kind of Good. stuff. Good. Yeah. Wow, killer. Okay, then you, I think then, you joined Cinderella. Well, that happened in, well, let me see. That's like mid-90s, right? No, that's, it was still late 80s. 89 was, yeah, 89 was You Paul's joined board. them? I so joined them in 90. Okay. Cause yeah. I, but I, were you just touring with them? Because I think the first album you played on is still rising, right? No, no. You're Opera on the Stations. other ones, like Night Moves. And when, all right, here's how this happens. So now I've been playing with Kiss for a few years at this point. We're getting ready to do the Hot in the Shade tour. Mm -hmm. They're managed by a new person now called uh, named Larry Mazer, who also managed Cinderella. Got it. While we were out on the Hot in the Shade tour, Cinderella was in the studio recording the Heartbreak Station record. Got it. And it was a bit of a departure from the first two because- I love that album. Yeah, me too. Yeah, yeah, it's and a good one. There were a lot more important keyboard parts on that mm -hmm. record. And so they just, they decided to, on the first two tours, they had a guy named Rick Crenitti, who was a friend of theirs who was a guitar player, who could play enough keyboards to play like the little pad stuff that they had him play off stage. Okay. But since Heartbreak Station had so many more keyboards on mm -hmm. it, they decided to actually add a real keyboard player who was going to be on stage. Okay. And so Larry Mazur said, I got the guy for you. And nice. while Kiss was in Philadelphia, I went to Tom Kiefer's house for dinner and okay. talked, and he played me some of the new stuff, Good. which I love. Okay. You know, because that's my, you know, Hammond and yeah. the real rootsy stuff. They were going bluesy by that point, and you were more into that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So you joined Cinderella for a little while. Uh, yeah, I did that tour, and then... Between that tour and still climbing took a couple of years because Tom had some throat issues. Oh, that's persisted, hasn't it? Yes. Yeah. And they threw, they also got rid of Fred. They fired Fred. Mm -hmm. We went through months of auditioning new drummers and finally found one, started recording that, that record, and then they once they were done with the tracks, decided they didn't like the new drummer. Uh. So they scrapped the tracks and had... Uh, Greg Bissonette come in and play them all over. Mm. And then they got to the next part and decided they didn't like those tracks. And they had Kenny Aronoff come in. And he's the one that... Aronoff. The on of course. Coming. Well, you can't go wrong with Kenny Aronoff. Right. Okay, good. Um, okay, I think we're getting short on time, but I okay. want to ask you a couple more things. Okay. First of all, how did you become associated with the Marleys, with Bob Marley's sons? Well, I moved down to Miami Beach in 97. Okay. I opened up a recording studio down there. And I was, one of the first friends I made down there was this Rastafarian guy. <laughs> you gotta get your price, you know, you gotta sure. have your guys and all yeah. And so, uh, <laughs> but he was also a guitar player. Okay. And we just hit it off, we became very close friends very fast. And he was connected to the Marley house where, where, where Bob's mom was living. And one of his brothers and um, 
and all his sons also lived in Miami. Okay. And Steven was the producer of all the brothers. Got it. Had his house with the SSL studio. And yeah. The first one I played with was Ziggy. And then I ended up doing uh, Steven's record and mm -hmm. Damien's record and Julian's record. You know, I, I even did Mother Booker, his yeah. mom's records. Wow. Once again, a completely different genre, mm -hmm. and you're right there doing just fine. Oh, I loved it. I love you know what those sessions are was probably the most fun, easygoing, relaxed. Yeah. And I got I well, I would two imagine for those two everyone's feeling pretty relaxed yeah. in those yeah. sessions. And that was priority one when you get to the studio mm. before you did anything else. Okay, let's all chill. Take a moment yeah. to chill out. Yeah. Got it. And and it was amazing. And they just wanted me to be. Play, yeah. play whatever came to me and it was okay. you know and they would sort it out afterwards and it was some of the easiest stuff I've ever wow. done wow amazing both of those two are the two things that I received Grammys for are the records that like were painless incredible make. yeah incredible so okay so you've been I mean you obviously had like everyone during the height of the music industry you had a really good run there for a while things are very different now how, you live here in Nashville correct yes. so how do you primarily make a living today well I'm still touring I was you are uh, yeah I was playing with a country artist named Chris Cagle okay uh, I was touring with him for quite a while I was actually with him for, I started with him in 2006 uh, and in between Cinderella tours okay I played with him throughout the year and, but then in 2014, I had to take a break, and I've had three shoulder surgeries. Ooh, okay. So it's kind of kept me off the road yeah. more lately, and um, so I've been forced to be doing more studio stuff. Yeah. And I've uh, been working on a couple of projects with, uh, well, I've been doing one with the Nelson Twins. Oh, we're going to talk to Gunnar Nelson here yeah. in just a little bit. Yeah, well, he'll Good. tell you about the new project, <laughs> I'm sure. Cool. And a couple other things for guys around town, because there's so many of the rock guys are here. Yeah, yeah. Mark Slaughter is another one, and, you know, we have talked about me playing with him live. Okay. If, if his new record warrants it, and, you know. So one of the things that I'm curious about, and you don't have to go into great detail, but, mm -hmm. um, you know, working with, you know, picking up and working with Gunnar Nelson sounds great. Somebody somewhere has to be funding all of this. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Or are you just, are these called in favors? Like you don't, Well, how does anyone make a living? Where's the money coming from if there's well, really that, not much of a business? It's not coming from that. Okay. It's not coming yet. You okay. Know, the idea is to, we're actually finishing up a record. Okay, so you, you invest in the project without, yeah. without being paid for it and you hope someone picks it up and then it makes money. Okay, I got it. Well, okay. but see, but don't forget. we try to cover the business side on here a little bit. In this day and age. Yeah. You don't need a record company. True. You don't need funding. The only thing you need the funding for is to make the record. Yeah, okay. But really, you don't really have any costs except recording costs. And everybody has a studio in their house these days. Yeah, okay. I have a very elaborate keyboard-based studio where I do tracks right. with people. Well, I've done this whole record with the Nelsons, doing my parts at my house and sending them through email. And that's yeah. where I work with a lot of people these days. Okay, okay. But, um, you know, with the internet now, you... You have a wide open world distribution network. And, okay. You know, if you have. If it, it works itself out, sounds yeah. like. Okay. Fascinating. Okay, real quick. A business. Yeah. That well, right. So before we go, tell me your favorite story. I purposely didn't ask you a lot of kiss questions because I know you've been on other podcasts talking about them, but do you have like the thing where it's like, I can't believe this happened to me? What is that thing? Well, there's a couple, but I really couldn't say them on the air. That's, <laughs> That's what I thought. Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I, would, I struggle with that. But, okay, um, okay. 
Yeah, all the good ones I just couldn't. Okay, couldn't but it's been a good life overall. I've, now, had, I've had some fun. If you guys could see the smile on this guy's <laughs> face, he's doing fine. Yeah, okay, good. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you for talking to me, Gary. This My was pleasure. fun, man. Was I really great. appreciate it. I enjoyed it.